Hello, I'm your host, Dr. Ginger Campbell, and today I'm doing something a little different. I'm releasing this podcast as episode 59 of Books and Ideas and as episode 123 of Brain Science. If you happen to be subscribed to both podcasts, the only difference you will notice between the two episodes is the music and musical credits. The content is exactly the same. Today I will be talking with Dr. Anthony Shamero about the new book, Phenomenology and Introduction, which he co-authored with Stefan Koifer. You can get complete show notes and a free transcript of this episode, both at booksandideas.com and at brainsciencepodcast.com. You can send me feedback at brainsciencepodcast at gmail.com. Well, what is phenomenology? It's basically the study of what experience is like. It's a philosophical approach that Shamero and others have argued has a lot to offer cognitive science, especially the approach known as embodied cognition, which is a subject I have explored several times on the Brain Science Podcast. Today's episode is a mixture of philosophy and cognitive science, which is why I'm releasing it both as a Books and Ideas episode and as an episode of Brain Science. I first became aware of phenomenology back when I read Evan Thompson's book, Mind in Life, which I interviewed him about back in episode 89 of the Brain Science podcast. I became aware of Anthony Shamero's work when I read his book, Radical Embodied Cognitive Science. In fact, we have been corresponding off and on for several years, so I'm excited to finally have a chance to talk with him. I will be back after the interview to some of the key ideas and also to tell you where you can go to learn more. Tony Shamero, it's great to have you on the podcast today. I think that we began corresponding back in 2011. I think that's right, yeah. So after all these years, it's great to have you on the show. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Well, first, uh, thank you for having me on. It's kind of an honor. I, I listen to the show all the time. So thank you. So right now I'm a professor in philosophy and psychology at the University of Cincinnati. All of my studies were more or less in philosophy. I got a bachelor's in philosophy and then a PhD in philosophy and cognitive science. And then I became somehow a psychology professor for 12 years at Franklin and Marshall College before moving here a few years ago. And you know, now, as I said, I'm kind of between philosophy and psychology. So I associate you with the embodied cognition and especially the radical embodied cognition movement. How did you get interested in, in that field? Partly it was just kind of luck and partly it was, you know, reading the right things at the right time. You know, early in graduate school, Tim Van Gelder, who was one of my professors, was editing the book Dynamical Systems called Mind is Motion. And he, you know, just handed me some of the preprint articles, especially articles by Randy Beer at the time, and then some others by Rodney Brooks and Kevin O'Regan were things that I was reading at the time, and, and David Kirsch. And these things just kind of started me thinking about, well, maybe thinking isn't something that happens inside our brains, but is something that we do by engaging with the environment. And so that was kind of early in graduate school, and I've just kind of stuck with it since then. So when you decided to go into philosophy, were you aiming at philosophy of mind? Or was, I mean, was there a big question that drove you into philosophy? 
So I was an undergraduate at Tufts, and I spent a lot of time around Dan Dennett. And he made me realize that doing philosophy could be really fun. Compared to most other disciplines, it just seemed like what Dan was doing was really fun. And it seemed like something that I wanted to try to do. So I've always kind of tried to just do whatever seemed fun. That's not very mature, I know, but it's just how I do things. And so, you know, I didn't want to do philosophy per se. I wanted to do what Dan Dennett does. So that led me to philosophy of mind and consciousness. When I was at Tufts, he was finishing the consciousness book. Um, so that, I was very interested in consciousness. But when I went to graduate school, I got much less interested in consciousness and more interested in just thinking in general. Well, I had the opportunity to meet Dan last summer for the first time. And I mean, I've read a lot of his work. You know, as a non-philosopher, his writing is kind of challenging. But in person, he is just such a nice, down-to-earth guy. I mean, I was really impressed with him. Right. I mean, the kind of really aggressive person who appears in print is not his personality at all. It's kind of surprising. Yeah. Yeah. I may need to figure out how I can get him on the show sometime. I'm just not sure that I'm up to that level. But anyway, getting back onto what we are talking about today, you have a new book called Phenomenology and Introduction, which just came out. So I guess I should start by asking you, if you don't mind, what is phenomenology? First, I should point out that the book is actually co-authored with Stefan Koifer. He's the first author. The press came to him about doing the book, and he talked me into doing it with him. So Stefan needs to have a lot of credit for this book's existence. So what is phenomenology? Phenomenology is basically the kind of study of what experience is like and what has to be the case for our experience to be the way it is. The mantra of the early work was, you know, let's get back to the phenomena themselves. So that is, what does it actually feel like to be us aware of the environment around us? In German, it was it started in Germany, and there's not a kind of good distinction between science and other systematic studies. So this was intended initially as kind of a science of consciousness. So was it a reaction to Kant? Well, everything in the kind of German academy and in the 19th and early 20th century was a reaction to Kant in one way or another. He's just a towering figure. Phenomenology is a kind of Kantian enterprise, at least initially. So it is an attempt to kind of set out what is necessary, what we have to be like to have the sorts of experiences that we have. And that's very much Kantian. The reason that I ask that is, I actually haven't read that many of the primary sources in philosophy once you get past the philosophy of mind, people. But I have read Critique of Pure Reason with great effort. And about the only thing I got out of it that meant anything to me was that what we experience is colored by our being human. Well, yeah, that's right. I mean, and you have the same experience reading the Critique of Pure Reason that everybody has. And I don't advise you to read it other than with a kind of an expert instructor. It's a very, very difficult book. I had a very hard time with it as well. That's the key point, right? He was interested in what we brought to the table. What is it about us that makes us have the sorts of experiences that we have, instead of what is it about the world that makes us have the sort of experiences that we have? Yeah, and the reason I asked whether phenomenology is a reaction to that is that it seemed like he came down on the side of, well, we can't ever really experience what's really there because what we get is indirect, created by our mind or whatever. So if you say, well, now we're going to get back to the experience itself, that seems to be somewhat of a reaction to that. Yeah, that's right. When Husserl, the Edmund Husserl, the founder of phenomenology, um, starts, he says, let's not worry about the relationship between what we experience and the world in itself. Let's just focus on the experiences. 
is called bracketing. Let's set aside the question of whether our experiences accurately represent what's out there. Let's just look at the experiences. So when they say, let's get to the phenomena themselves, they don't mean the world, they mean our experience of the world. So what year would that have been when Herschel, he's the beginnings, right? What year would that have been? So he started writing in the late 19th century um, and wrote through the middle of the 20th century. He wrote thousands and thousands of pages, but starting in the late 19th century. And really around the turn of the 20th century was when he started doing the work that we now think of as phenomenology. Because one of the things I really appreciate about this book is the fact that it puts phenomenology into historical context. Can you follow through on that and just take us sort of through the timing of how phenomenology has has developed and who the key figures were? Sure. Um, So one thing that's really different about our book is that we don't treat phenomenology as just a historical endeavor. We kind of take it as something that people are still doing now. Mostly people think of phenomenology as a historical movement in philosophy that ended, you know, in the 1950s or 60s or transformed into something dramatically different. And we try to take it as something that's still going on. So that's one big difference. So how did it start? It started with Husserl wanting to get to the experiences themselves, the phenomena themselves. This is a really broad overview. His kind of great student was Martin Heidegger, who in the 1920s started writing a book, work in phenomenology that was primarily a response to Husserl and a rejection of a lot of the things Husserl said. So Husserl wanted to start a new science of experience, and Heidegger said, yes, let's do that, but let's reject all the bases (laughs) on which Husserl wanted to build it. And Heidegger starts focusing instead of on kind of what it's like to sit and think about the world, about what it's like to kind of engage with the world. And later, um, Maurice Merleau-Ponty, a French philosopher who was also profoundly influenced by um, German psychology and neuroscience, starts saying, right, if Husserl is saying we need to talk about experience, and Heidegger says we need to talk about the experience of being engaged with the environment, we actually need to start focusing on embodiment, on what our bodies are like. So when Merleau-Ponty tries to answer the Kantian question of what do we have to be like in order to have the experiences that we have, he starts focusing on our skilled engagement with the environment, so being skillful and embodied. So that's the kind of core of set of ideas, what most people think about as being phenomenology. We kind of extend that in the book, lumping in a bunch of things that people don't think of as being phenomenology or in the tradition anymore, by including a lot of science. So after Merleau-Ponty, there's some interesting work, we think, that calls itself phenomenology, especially contemporary feminist phenomenology. We're interested in that. But a lot of the kind of movement becomes neuroscience and psychology and cognitive science. So uh, James Gibson is a really important, pivotal figure in this, where he kind of makes some of the ideas of Merleau-Ponty into science. He was reading Merleau-Ponty, but he was also kind of part of this American tradition of psychology that was interested in skillful engagement with the environment. And kind of, again, thinking as something you do often by moving your body around rather than something that happens inside your head. Right. And I have talked about Gibson, probably not recently, in terms of the idea of affordances, which seems like, well, first, why don't you just talk about that and perhaps compare Gibson's affordances to Heidegger's view of that, because he always seems a lot more abstract to me than Gibson. He's much more abstract. Yeah, that's right. I actually kind of started getting interested in Gibson because I was in graduate school wanting to do cognitive science and artificial intelligence, but being very interested in Heidegger. And I saw Gibson as like, what would Heidegger do if he were going to be a scientific psychologist? 
So I think there's a, you know, I think there's something very deeply connected about the two of them. And in the book, we spend a long time talking about the history of psychology and how Gibson ends up saying really similar things to Heidegger and Merleau-Ponty, even though he, you know, was working in a kind of psychology department in a psychology tradition. Okay, so that's all background, I guess. Um, so Gibson's idea of affordances, are there kind of opportunities for behavior in the environment? So when you look around at something like, you know, you see in my office here, I'm sitting across from a chair, and I don't see a chair necessarily as a kind of object with properties. I see it as something I could sit on. As I look around, I see opportunities to engage with things. And this is a really attractive idea, especially evolutionarily speaking, right? Because you want to give credit to non-humans to see the world, but you don't necessarily want to think that your cat, say, recognizes a chair and then realizes that it can sit on the chair and then realizes that it wants to sit now and then decides from there to get on the chair, right? You just want to say that your cat sees a place it can sit. So this idea of affordances, I think, is pretty attractive, evolutionarily speaking. So again, these opportunities for behavior are things that you can study scientifically and they relate to what Heidegger said in a way, because Heidegger was talking about experiencing the world as what he called, or what's translated into English as ready to hand. That is experiencing the world in skillful engagement with it. So I think that affordances are a way to kind of scientifically get at what Heidegger was talking about when he talked about the world as being ready to hand. And I guess I should point out that what Heidegger talks about the world as ready to hand, he's contrasting it with unready to hand and present at hand. I like to talk about this in terms of bicycles. So when you're riding your bicycle, you're not really aware of the bicycle as a thing. The bicycle is ready to hand. You're just experiencing the street and your path and the traffic and things around you. But then when something goes kind of wrong with the bicycle, you start noticing it, right? And it becomes unready to hand. Like suppose you change gears and the derailleur sticks or slips and you say, wait a minute, and you notice the bicycle for a second. And then you keep going, then the bicycle has become unready to hand temporarily because it disrupts you, the kind of flow of your behavior. And then if you get a flat tire or the chain comes off, you have to get off your bicycle and start looking at it as an object that you have to repair. And that's what Heidegger called present at hand. So again, these are the kind of three modes of experience. And what Heidegger was claiming, what I was mostly interested in, is that our primary engagement with the world is as ready to hand, as kind of skillful, unreflective use without a lot of thinking. And Gibson's affordances are a way to kind of access that scientifically, I think. Yeah, I think it's a really powerful idea. And I, when I first heard it, I, was, I think it was when I talked to Art Glenberg was the first time I'd heard about it. When you go into a room and you see things that you know how to do something with, you see differently from objects that you are unfamiliar with. If I, as a doctor, I go into the hospital, almost everything that I see, I see as a thing to use. Whereas if a patient is in the hospital, those instruments around them are perceived in a different way to them. That's right. I mean, the um, different skills that we have will affect what is afforded to us, what affordances we see, as too does our kind of inclinations at the time. Right now, I could stand up on my desk and start dancing around. That's afforded to me given my legs and body and abilities, but it's not something that I see as inviting me to act, right? So there are lots of things that are afforded to me that I don't bother to engage with. There are kind of differences among us in what's afforded to us. And again, imagine going to a foreign country where you can't read signs. And there are also differences intrapersonally with the affordances that we notice at any particular time, right? When we're hungry, we notice things that we don't notice other times, for example. Absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, the idea of affordances is the main thing that Gibson is known for. And it's a really valuable notion. It turns out to be the thing that connects him in a deep way with people like Merleau-Ponty and Heidegger. 
we argue in the book, at least. Yeah. Well, one of the things I really appreciated about the book was I really never thought about the fact that psychology came out of philosophy. I mean, I knew that William James was obviously a philosopher and considered the father of American psychology, but, you know, I'd never really put that into any kind of larger context in terms of the relationship between philosophy and psychology. So I found that really interesting. That's something that people, I think, don't notice enough, right, is that this, the founder of psychology, people often say, is um, Wilhelm Wundt, who started the first psychology lab in Germany. Both James's American philosophy, which was profoundly influential on Gibson, and the Gestalt psychologists, who were profoundly influential on Merleau-Ponty, were reactions to Wundt's initial psychology, right? So the kind of history of psychology plays a deep role in how phenomenology goes and how phenomenological cognitive science goes, despite the fact that not everybody nowadays realizes it. Right. It's like you just said at the beginning, people think of phenomenology as, as something historical, not something living. But I think you make an excellent argument in the book that it's a living tradition if we look at, you know, its influence on cognitive science. So do you mind if we spend a little bit of time talking about Merleau-Ponty? Because that was just one of the chapters that really stood out for me. In fact, because of all the quotes of the new translation of Phenomenology of Perception, I've actually started um, trying to read that book, which, as I mentioned before, is not something I commonly do. I think it's a little bit more readable than Kant. It's a lot more readable than Kant, but it's also very difficult. So if any listeners decide they want to pick up the phenomenology of perception, the key thing to understanding it is to realize that there are always three voices in the book. There's Merleau-Ponty's own voice, but then there's the rationalist and the empiricist who he's kind of arguing with. Sometimes it gets confusing. It's because you lose track of who's talking. You sometimes think, oh, Merleau-Ponty can't be saying that because he disagrees with that. Then you realize that, oh, he's being the rationalist now that he's going to later reject. So it's a very difficult book, partly because he's doesn't always signal clearly whose argument he's making. Yeah, I want to talk about that for a minute. But first, because I want listeners to understand why I would even care about this book, is that he was really the one who said that embodiment is essential piece of understanding what's going on. Whether people doing embodied cognition realize their debt to him or not, so I'd like to talk about those two things that he's arguing against, but can you first of all talk a little bit about why his work is interesting to people who are interested in embodied cognition? Sure. You know, Stefan and I taught a class on this once, and the way we always talk about it is that Merleau-Ponty is where it kind of really gets good. He's the one who really gets it right, primarily because, you know, he's reacting to this kind of rich philosophical background, but also knew a lot about psychology and neuroscience. So he really kind of gets a lot of things right. And what he gets right is he takes something that's really only implicit in Heidegger, which is, you know, this kind of centrality of the body. Merleau-Ponty sometimes says things like, the body isn't a thing, it's kind of the center of the world and not a thing in the world. Right? That's how we experience our bodies as being the center of the universe. And what he says is that what we do when we engage with the environment is we engage through it using skills that Kantian question, what do we have to be like in order to have the sorts of experiences that we have? Merleau-Ponty answers that question by pointing to our skillful engagement with the environment, the things we can do and the things we can do well. 
So how do we have experiences at all? Well, we have a body that has lots of abilities and we see the world. The world shows up to us through those abilities. So those abilities are the kind of necessary things that we have in order to have experiences at all. So he's answering the Kantian questions, this kind of traditional question, but he's doing it in a very different way. Not pointing about things that we know, but things that we can do. So this is the kind of why he's a heroic figure in embodied cognition, at least those who think about the history of it, is that, you know, he's the first person who said in great detail that our bodies are the thing that make us have the experiences that we have. He called it our lived body. So our kind of skillful readiness to engage with the world is the kind of basis for our experience. So in bringing out the importance of our embodiment, he has these arguments that are against Help me make sure I get this right. It's against empiricism and against intellectualism. Yeah, that's right. Can you explain what those two things, what they are when he's attacking them? Because I'm not sure that the things he's attacking, that the words necessarily mean what they mean to us now. Right. So in one case, he in the intellectualist case, he's kind of arguing against Kant and Husserl, among others, that the kind of foundation of our experience with the world is rational or thoughtful or cognitive. He's arguing against that idea. And and, um, when he talks about the empiricist, he's actually arguing against people who think that we don't have to bring anything to the world, that we just directly engage with it. That would be Hume. That would be Hume. And also the scientists of his era, people who think that you don't need to do philosophy in order to understand experience. Again, there's this idea that he takes from Kant that in order to understand our experience of the world, we have to understand what we bring to the table. And what we bring to the table from Merleau-Ponty's point of view is, is skill. There are others who said we don't need to worry about what we bring to the table, right? We just need to worry about what the world is like. And that's the kind of empiricist that he's arguing against. And that's Hume, and that's most of the scientists of his time, especially the behaviorist scientists of the you know, mid-20th century. They didn't want to think about what was going on in the head at all. That's right. That's right. Okay. That makes sense. And, you know, I guess that's one of the things that really appeals to me about this work, even though it's hard. I don't like the idea that it's either or, you know, there's so, so many positions seem to be, you know, you have to be for nature and against nurture and vice versa. That's as an example, when actually usually things turn out to be more mixed together. Yeah. I mean, I think you have to be kind of humble and realize that the world is way more interesting than our, you know, kind of simplistic first pass theories. Like it's all nature or it's all nurture or it's all concepts or it's all skills or the idea that it's all anything, I think, paints a far too limited picture of what the world is like and what we're like. Before we pass off Merrill Ponte, the other reason why I wanted to read Phenomenology of Perception is that I know that it's full of actual cases and things like illusions and things like that. That's why when he's attacking empiricism, it's important to realize that he's not attacking what I, in the 21st century, might think the word empiricism means. Right. Because he has lots of real-world data, so to speak, that's informing his philosophy. Right. I mean, Merleau-Ponty was significantly engaged with the science of his time. His first book was basically about Gestalt psychology. He got a grant to write his first book. He also was reading neuroscience, and like you said, there are case studies of of neuroscience patients in the book, and so he really is engaging with the science of his time. But he's also arguing that you can't just engage with the science, you need to actually do philosophy as well. Like I said, Stefan and I always say that he's where it really gets good. Careful thinking is brought into contact with the good science. Right. Sort of like Daniel Dennett. Right. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the people who 
know a lot of science but aren't willing to kind of throw up their hands and say, well, that means there are no philosophical questions. So Merleau-Ponty is engaging with the science but saying there is a place for philosophy. In certain moods, I often wonder what, how much of a place there is for philosophy, but it depends on my mood of the day. But what Merleau-Ponty was doing was definitely philosophy and definitely engaging with science. I interview a lot of different people, scientists and philosophers, and the scientists have some funny ideas about philosophy as a general rule. Yeah, I think that's right. In my day-to-day life, I go walk across campus between two departments. And I think that a lot of scientists think that the end-all philosophical sophistication is to say that really it's all just models of the world, not the world itself. And, you know, most philosophers think that's crazy. So there's this kind of like weird idea that scientists have about philosophers and that philosophers have about science. And I think that philosophers tend to think scientists are kind of unsophisticated in their engagement with the equipment they use in the laboratory. I just think that everybody's smarter than the other team gives them credit for. And that's probably a good point in general. I've had a lot of other conversations with people about the challenges of doing interdisciplinary work. And I think that that's one of the challenges is that people don't know enough about other people's fields and they tend to always think more of their own field. That's just human nature, I guess. So what else should we talk about before we get into the phenomenological cognitive science? We should talk a little bit about Gibson, I think, because Gibson was a psychologist who was deeply interested in philosophy. Gibsonian, contemporary Gibsonian psychologists, ecological psychologists, they're called, are much more interested in philosophy than most any other scientists around. And I think that's because they realized that to do the kind of psychology that Gibson was recommending, they need to engage with philosophical questions. You asked earlier about, you know, the kind of radical embodied approach. Well, the key point of the radical embodied approach is that we don't engage with the world by kind of building internal representations of it. And that comes from Gibson, right? That was Gibson's main point was to reject the idea that thinking is something that happens in our brains. And so in order to do that, the Gibsonians have had to really focus on philosophical questions about epistemology. That is, how do we know about the world if we're not building models of it? And they say that we just engage with it directly. Then they have to say, well, what's the world like such that we engage with it directly? Well, it's made up of affordances. There are kind of these philosophical questions that come from psychological theory and actually drive a lot of experimental practice in ecological psychology. You know, Gibson is in important ways the kind of key pivotal figure in our book because he's the one that kind of sets up a really good scientific way to look at the questions that the phenomenologists were interested in. Okay. As I said, I think at the beginning, one of the reasons why I wanted to talk with you is because I think we share an interest in the intersection between phenomenology and cognitive science. So perhaps you could start out by explaining how phenomenological approaches to cognition are fundamentally different than standard cognitive science. I think you touched on that, but let's be explicit. Sure. So the cognitive revolution that happened in the 1950s was a revolution against the behaviorist idea that we could explain all of our thinking in terms of learning and engaging with the environment and not in terms of anything internal. And so the cognitive revolution is the idea that our brains are kind of computers where we're building models of the environment inside our brains, which we engage with the models in order to engage with the environment. And the phenomenological tradition from Heidegger, Husserl, sorry, Heidegger and Merleau-Ponty forward, rejects that idea that thinking is something that we do in our heads. It's something that we do by engaging with the world. And that's what our experience is like, is engaging with the world. So the phenomenological approaches to cognitive science always begin with questioning how much internal modeling of the environment there is. Rodney Brooks, who's an early person who 
insist that he had nothing to do with phenomenology, but was using these ideas, said that, you know, it's easier to just let the world serve as its own model rather than rebuilding it inside of your brain when you're trying to build a robot that does something. So rather than kind of build a model of the world around you, you just check it all the time. You're constantly sensing as opposed to model building. So the, the key idea in the phenomenological cognitive science is to kind of question the centrality of the idea of mental representation or mental computation. We have to understand thinking as engaging with the world as something we do as opposed to something that happens to us. And I think that's the kind of friendliest way to put it, right, is that thinking is something that we do. It's not something that happens in our brains. You have several different approaches in this chapter. Would the importance of embodiment be the thing that they all have in common? Uh, yeah, that's right. I mean, again, it's what makes Merleau-Ponty where it gets really good. And it's what makes the work in cognitive science that we identify as kind of being in the phenomenological tradition similar feminist philosophers do, where they also focus closely on embodiment and engaging with the world, um, as opposed to rational computation in your brain. The body is the key to what we're calling phenomenological cognitive science. You've interviewed some of the people who we think of as doing this kind of cognitive science in the past. So I think it'll be familiar to some of your listeners, the idea that we have to kind of focus on brains in bodies in environments to understand how any of those things work. A way to say this is, is that if we look at what your brain is doing before we see what your body is like and the environment around you, we're going to misunderstand what your brain is doing. So even if you want to focus on brains, you need to focus on brains in bodies in environments. Right. That brings to mind one of the things that's different from the standard cognitive science model, which the simplistic view would be the brain in the vat. I mean, the idea that what our minds do is... I think your chapter used the word medium independent. Yes. As if it was just software that could be moved somewhere and the thing that it's in doesn't matter. Right. So the idea in kind of more typical cognitive science, standard cognitive science, is that, you know, your thinking is software and your brain is a computer. But just like I could run Microsoft Word on lots of different kinds of computers, we could run the software that is your mind on lots of different kinds of computers, including a, a laptop. Right, which is why the idea of artificial intelligence has been so central to cognitive science since it was founded. I guess the cognitive science and artificial intelligence were founded together. And in the embodied approach, you start rejecting some of that, right? So you say, actually, what the machine is made of really does matter, right? It's not just something so abstract that you can move it from medium to medium to medium from your iPhone to your iPad to your laptop, right? It's not like that at all. The, the details of the embodiment make a big difference. So I was lucky enough to be in graduate school with um, Esther Thielen and Linda Smith, and they always talked about walking. And you know, they would say that really your brain's job in helping you learn to walk is really easy because your legs already know how to walk. I mean, imagine how, how different it would be to learn to walk if you didn't have a kneecap, which really dramatically limits the degrees of freedom in which your leg can move. Right? Suddenly, your brain has a much easier job because the way your legs can move is really limited by the fact that you have a kneecap. Right? So you would misunderstand what your brain is doing if you didn't start with the idea that you have a particular sort of leg that it has to control. So the body really does matter, and it makes a difference, even if you want to focus on just brains. Yeah, I, a long time ago, I think the very first person that I ever talked to about this was Rolf Pfeiffer. And I think it was from him that I learned about Rodney Brooks's work. When they started to try to build robots to do stuff, 
That was a, a real-world demonstration that computation wasn't going to get the job done. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, you don't want to downplay the possibilities of computation because there are lots of really smart people doing really cool things. But even if you could, using a purely computational system, build something that does all the things we can do, it wouldn't do them in the same way that we do. So you might be able to build a robot that does all the stuff that a human does. It's not impossible in principle, but it wouldn't do them in the way that we do them. Right? So think about the way a chess-playing computer differs from a, a human chess player. The chess-playing computer uses kind of brute force computation to consider all of the possible moves, whereas a, a human chess-playing expert considers only a few. So there's a kind of different process going on there. So I don't think you want to deny the possibility of like really, really smart machines, but they wouldn't be really, really smart in virtue of being like us. They'd be taking a different path to being so smart. Books and Ideas and the Brain Science Podcast have both been sponsored by Audible.com since 2007. Audible is a leading provider of downloadable audio content, especially audiobooks. They have over 150,000 titles in every genre. Today, I want to recommend The Martian by Andy Weir. The movie was great, probably as good as the book, but I especially recommend the book for those of you who love hard science fiction combined with a compelling story. If you aren't already a member of Audible, you can get this as a free download by going to audiblepodcast.com forward slash books and ideas. So this is a little bit, I guess, off the subject from your book, but I'm just tempted in this direction. On the subject of representation and computation, when I'm thinking about the current embodied cognition, mainstream embodied cognition versus radical, which my understanding is radical embodied cognition, does it totally reject representation and computation or just and the reason I ask is because it seems like, for example, we know there are places in the brain where there are body maps. Would they not be considered a type of representation? Or is that not what is meant by the word representation? I guess it depends who you ask. You know, I am uh, more ecumenical than a lot of other people about these things. This is a story that Rick Dale told, and Rick Dale, who's a psychologist at University of California at Merced, told in, in a paper in almost 10 years ago now, where he says, you know, suppose I came to you and said I had a theory of the Mississippi River. The Mississippi, because Rick used to live in Memphis. So I have a theory of the Mississippi River. You would want to know what about the Mississippi River, because you could have a theory about its place in art, its sedimentation, its place in industry, chemical composition. So the idea that you'd have one theory that explains everything about the Mississippi River is kind of implausible. And humans are just as complicated as the Mississippi River. So the idea that one story about us could capture everything of interest seems kind of implausible to me. So when I talk about radical embodied cognitive science, I'm talking about a kind of cognitive science, which is going to tell part of the story, at least part of the story. The question is how much. So I do think there are things that we do by doing something like representing the world around us. Like right now, I can think about my toaster at home. It's a nice toaster. It's a perfectly nice toaster. I used it this morning, but it's not present with me. So I have to engage it some way. And I think that the way I engage it is doing something like what standard computational cognitive scientists think we do all the time. So I guess what I want to say is we, we represent our grandmothers when they're not around, 
but we don't need to represent the bicycle that we're riding, or we don't need to represent the guitar that we're playing, or anything that we're engaged with in this kind of ready-to-hand way, right? So I guess part of this is just that kind of being ecumenical. I think that humans are interesting and complicated, and one story is not going to tell the whole truth about them. And I also think that the idea that we need to build models of the bicycle that we're riding to pedal, that's not the right way to approach it. This is, gets back to Rodney Brooks, right? He says it's for the bulkiest parts of intelligence. Representation is the wrong thing to use. So certainly for the bulkiest parts of intelligence, I would want to say that we don't use representations. But that's kind of not close to a story of how we write sonnets or plan a birthday party. This is where I disagree with some of my more radically inclined friends. I tend to think that we do lots of different things, some of which involve representing the environment, but many of which don't. That's a really, really good ecumenical answer. But when we're talking about building, we still need to build models for embodied cognition. So what kind of models? You talk in the book about dynamical models. How would dynamical models be different from the standard type? One thing is that they're not, typically at least, they're not models of things happening inside your brain. They're models of your body and the environment. Instead of using kind of computational principles, dynamical models use calculus. And calculus is really good at explaining how things change over time according to something roughly law-like. So the explanations in dynamical cognitive science, which is a, one of the main explanatory styles in embodied cognitive science, um, just have a different character. They're not typically, at least, explanations of what's going on just in the brain. They're ex explanations of brains in bodies and environments. The kind of hoped-for endgame in the dynamical approach is that what you'll have is dynamical models of brains and bodies and environments, and then you'll have dynamical models of brains and bodies, and then you'll have dynamical models of brains. And there'll be kind of similarity in, in all of these models. Again, the idea is your brain is the dynamical system in controlling your body that's a dynamical system in an environment that's also a dynamical system, and all of these things change together. So there are a lot of scientists, like Eva had Olaf Sporns on, Walter Freeman is another one who do dynamical modeling of the brain. The idea of this dynamical systems modeling is it doesn't matter what it's a model about. It can apply to anything. And it's very useful for doing macro things like bodies and environments and how they change together over time. So can you relate this to the phrase you introduced in the book, front-loading phenomenology? Sure. That's a phrase from uh, Dan Zahavi and Sean Gallagher, who are philosophers who are interested in phenomenology and engage with the sciences. I want to make sure I say their names because they're doing great work. And this is their idea. So the idea is that when you start thinking about how to do an experiment, you start thinking about it in terms of these phenomenological questions. You start thinking in terms of ideas from Merleau-Ponty. So how, how do my skills enable me to engage in this situation? That's kind of putting the ideas of Merleau-Ponty about what our experience is like at the center of an empirical research program. Five years ago now, with a couple of my students, Dobri, Dotov, and Ling Ni, we did some experiments trying specifically to test Heidegger's ideas. I mentioned earlier this idea of ready to hand, which is what the world is like when you're engaging with it smoothly, and then unready to hand, which is when it disrupts your flow. The example I used before was your bicycle chain slips, or your derailleur slips temporarily when you're riding it. It becomes unready to hand, and you notice the bicycle. Well, we tried to do some experiments to quantify this experience, this kind of change from smoothly engaging with the world to kind of noticing something going wrong. Right? So that's kind of front-loading phenomenology, to kind of think in terms of the ideas of the phenomenological philosophers when you're trying to do science. 
I mean, that's a really good point because actually whenever an experiment is designed, it's designed from a certain point of view, even if the scientist doesn't realize that they're doing that. I really think that's the reason why philosophers need to be engaged in science, to remind scientists that they have a point of view. Yeah, that's right. I think, you know, if you think about um, this is reductive and unfair to everybody involved, including the people who do the sort of work that we do in our lab. But, you know, the dynamical embodied approach seems right to whatever extent we can make people behave like oscillators. And the kind of computational approach seems right to whatever extent we can make people behave like computers in the lab. Right? So if we have someone sitting in front of a, a monitor pressing buttons, they seem a lot like computers. But if you have them engaging with another human in a cooperative task, they seem a lot like oscillators. And the dynamical approach is better. When we set things up in the lab, we have a question that we're asking in mind and a theoretical background that we bring to the table. So, you know, we spend a lot of our time trying to think of tasks in which people will behave in a way that dynamical models are easily applicable to. And similarly, computational cognitive scientists will do the same thing with computational models. How can I get a person to act like this computer process that I figured out? So we always are bringing a lot of theoretical baggage into the lab with us. And there's been a, a movement in philosophy for the last decade or so where philosophers have gotten very interested, more than a decade, where philosophers have gotten really interested in scientific practice. So that is not just what are scientific theories, but what do scientists actually do, right? And what are the theoretical assumptions behind what those scientists actually do? And it's been going on for way more than a decade. You know, people suddenly started focusing on what's going on in the lab as opposed to what's going on in this kind of theoretical article. It's a big change in the philosophy of science. And I think Ian Hacking and Helen Cartwright are among those largely responsible for it, for focusing on scientific practice. The example that comes to mind for me is the drive toward imaging everything, like where is the only important question? Right. Yeah, that's right. I mean, there are lots of methodological questions you can ask about any scientific approach. People often aren't asking the right questions about imaging studies. There's a lot that happens between the pretty picture and the person lying still in the fMRI machine. Philosophers are now starting to engage with that and think about what happens in between the lying still pressing buttons and the pretty pictures that end up in the New York Times science section. These are hard questions. They involve knowing a lot of detail about science. And I think this is a good thing that philosophers are starting to kind of learn that detail and ask those questions. Well, it's really important because the view that we have of how our brains work and how our minds work deeply influences what we think it means to be human. I mean, that's the reason why I do this show. That's right. That's why these questions are interesting. A lot of what makes me attracted to the kind of ecological embodied approach is that I think it paints a more attractive picture of what humans are like and one that I think has kind of positive social consequences. So if you think that what matters a lot is engaging with an environment and the affordances of that environment, you suddenly start thinking a lot about how should we structure environments for humans so that they can live the best way. And I think that's a, a more attractive picture of how we should engage with the world that if you, if you start thinking that it's all genetic or all, it's all about neurons and all about nutrition or all about uterine environments, you know, you get a very different picture of what humans are like and what we, how we ought to behave. So partly I'm attracted, not even partly, the majority of my attraction to the approaches in cognitive science that I like and in philosophy are because I think that they give us a more compelling and more a kinder picture of humans. This subject never comes up explicitly in your book, but this approach is also very compatible with what we're learning about how social we are. Yeah, that's right. That's a form of affordances, I guess, if you broaden the concept. 
Yeah, so the hard thing with phenomenology, if, as Husserl was doing it, is he said, okay, you, you just bracket, set aside the question of whether the world exists. Well, then the question is, how do we engage with others if we are setting aside the question of whether they exist? And Heidegger says, in response, well, being is just essentially being with, being with others. And that's so important to all of our environments and all of what we do. And again, what we're finding using these kind of like phenomenologically inspired methods is that you can use the same sorts of explanations, dynamical explanations for social coordination and social interaction that you can use for person-environment interaction, that you can use for intrapersonal interaction. And also um, people like Scott Kelso have been showing that you can use the same sorts of explanations for interactions among brain areas. What the dynamical people want is the same set of models that apply at multiple scales. And one of those scales which they very definitely do apply is social interaction. In the upcoming section of this interview, Dr. Shamero talks about the Hawken-Kelso-Buns model, which is a dynamical model which is widely discussed in cognitive science. I just want to take a moment to describe the original experiment because although the model uses differential equations, you can easily demonstrate the results for yourself. If a person is asked to wag both index fingers with a metronome, one of two stable patterns always emerges. They'll either end up wagging their fingers in phase or totally out of phase. Actually, this is true at low rates, but if you speed up, then only the in-phase pattern remains. You can actually do this yourself to demonstrate that it's true. Just wag your fingers and see what happens. Like I said, this can be described by differential equations, but it's important because it can be applied to a wide variety of phenomena at different scales, as Dr. Shamero talked about earlier. Finger wagging would be sort of a large scale, down at the level of brain regions would be a lower level scale where the same sort of in-sync behavior emerges. Are there any examples that you think we might include before we start to work our way to the end? Sure. Should I talk about something in the book or should I talk about something that we're doing now in our lab? I mean, what would you prefer? Whichever you want. I mean, the book's got great examples, but we want the people to read the book. So it's okay if you talk about something you're working on now. As, as long as it's similar, that will be fine. I just want to get them to have a feel for, a concrete feel for what this means to do this kind of work. Sure. Okay. It turns out that there are kind of some basic principles that apply at all scales to human behavior. So the example that we use in the book is, there, is that there's a model a dynamical model called the Hawken-Kelso-Buns model that applies at the same time to brain area interaction and kind of brain-to-body interaction and body-part-to-body-part -body -part interaction and person-to-person -person interaction and kind of broader multi-person interactions as well. So that the same kind of explanatory model can work at all scales and explain interesting behavior at all scales. And most recently, a student in my lab, a couple students in my lab, Patrick Nalepka and Chris Reem, along with Mike Richardson and me, have used this to study the way people interact in playing video games. So we have people playing a video game where they are herding, basically being sheepdogs and herding sheep into the center of the arena. And when they play the video game, they turn out to obey exactly the constraints of the HKB equation. So what is 
going on here in these dynamical models is that you explain a whole range of phenomena using the same bit of mathematics. And that bit of mathematics does not imply in any way that you are building models of the environment or representing the environment or computing anything. It's just an explanation of how things change together over time. And it turns out that your brain areas change together over time in the same way that you and the person you're sitting next to change together over time. And the way that they change together over time is you use energy to temporarily work together to coordinate with one another. And then when you're done coordinating with one another, you go back to the way that you had been acting before and the way that's easiest for you to act. It takes work to engage with somebody. And then, and there are only a few ways you can do it. And then you go back to kind of the way you prefer to be. And that's true from brain areas all the way up to social interactions. So again, the idea is the same explanatory strategy works at all scales, and it doesn't involve anything like computation. And it doesn't involve representation in the sense that it's not like you've got this complicated model of the world with these parameters that are the world. It's about how um, the interactions change. That's right. I mean, so of course, the model that we use to explain all of this stuff, we as scientists use to explain human behavior, is a representation. But it doesn't imply that the humans that we're modeling are using representations. Right? So there's the kind of scientific object, the model that we use, in this case, the Hocken-Kelso-Bunz model. What you're saying is we don't in our head have a, an HKB model. Oh, goodness, no. I mean, you know, it's solving differential equations. We couldn't be doing that. So again, this points back to that ecumenicalism that I was talking about, right? Because I'm saying that we as scientists are doing something that we can't do or don't do when engaging with another person doing a simple task. So scientists are using complicated mathematical models to represent what humans do when they play video games together. But that doesn't mean that the humans are using a complicated mathematical model. It's similar to saying that, you know, we have a mathematical model that explains the orbits of the planets, but that doesn't mean that the planets are calculating their trajectories. Good analogy. You asked me this before, and I mentioned Gibson. I think, you know, Gibson is important. But there are other people whose work is really pivotal in kind of making what is this historical movement into a kind of contemporary scientific endeavor. People like Francisco Varela and Humberto Maturana are people who've turned these kind of thinking about experience into a way to do science. There's this approach in cognitive science called inactivism. And again, I know that you've had Evan Thompson on. So inactivists are another set of people who are specifically applying kind of phenomenological ideas, especially from Merleau-Ponty, to try to understand our experience. There's this idea from Merleau-Ponty about the lived body. The lived bodies are basically your set of skills with which you confront the world. What an activist have realized, and again, this is especially Evan Thompson, have realized is that if you start with the idea that you are a living body, a lot of philosophical questions about how we could have conscious experience or how we could be active and engage with the world kind of melt away. It seems at least pretty mysterious as to how regular physical matter could have experiences, but it seems a lot less my mysterious if you start with the idea of something being alive, a living body. So that had led people like Maturana and Varela and Evan Thompson and Elnor Roche and Ezekiel de Paolo and others to start talking about what it is to be a living body. And activists start from the idea of there being a living body. What is it to be alive? And once you answer that question, it turns out that a lot of the questions about experience are a lot easier to answer. That is, again, another way of kind of bringing specifically phenomenological concerns into the science, right? Because they start with the idea of the lived body from Merleau-Ponty. That is the set of skills with which you engage the world. And from there, you build a scientific psychology based on what living things are like. 
This is called the inactive approach. In the book, we talk about it as one of the ways in which people are doing cognitive science now that it's kind of in the phenomenological tradition. In Thompson's work, especially, um, I always can never remember if it's mind and life or life and mind. I think it's mind and life. When I was reading that book, I was really struck with how, for me, that really seemed to be the case, that when you started thinking of it as a lived body, that some of the questions just seemed to melt away. That's right. And it also turns out that the way you explain the lived body scientifically is using similar dynamical models to the ones that I was talking about earlier with the kind of nested sets of dynamical systems. It turns out the way you explain a lived body is to use all of those tools as well. So kind of the phenomenological cognitive science with which some of these questions just melt away when you start focusing on lived bodies really does require these dynamical models. It maybe doesn't require them, at least takes full advantage of them. It's a way to do science. We still have plenty of good questions. Plenty of good questions. That's right. Long after we're gone, there'll be plenty of good questions. So I always ask my guests about advice for students. And since you do philosophy, the question that I want to ask you is, if you're talking to a student today who's trying to decide between, say, going into philosophy versus going into neuroscience or even psychology, what advice would you give them? Well, the most important thing, right? Getting a PhD is hard. If you really wanted to get a PhD, and it's hard. It's hard work. And there are going to be plenty of times when you're going to want to give up because it's so hard. So that means you have to do the thing that you like best. I say this all the time to my students, is that this is supposed to be fun, right? It has to be fun or you won't do it because it's too hard. So despite the fact that getting a job as a philosopher is really hard, if you really want to do philosophy, you shouldn't do neuroscience instead because the job market is better because you won't succeed. So the key thing is just to do the thing that you like best. And even better is just to not take a label if you can help it, right? That is, be interested in all the things that you're interested in. So it has to be fun or you won't do it because you'll be struggling to finish your doctorate at some point. And you'll be like, why am I doing this? And if you can't answer because I really love it, then you won't finish. Like I said, don't do psychology instead of neuroscience, instead of philosophy, because you think your job prospects will be better or something like that. Do it because it's the thing you really want to do. Well, that's a good point. And it reminds me of the fact that I've gotten recently an email from somebody asking for permission to cite some stuff in their thesis that's on art. And I've had another listener who got a PhD in art theory that has a bunch of references to the Brain Science Podcast in it. So I really think that what you said about being interested in whatever it is you're interested in is really the key. Especially when you're doing something as hard as a PhD. There are going to be these times when you're wondering why you're doing this. You know, why do I live in this terrible small town in the middle of nowhere in the prime years of my life? Better be because I love what I'm doing or I should just move to a place I want to live instead. Okay, one last chance for what I've left out, then we'll wrap up. I still don't feel happy with what I gave as an example. But besides that, you know, we've covered a lot of stuff. Okay, so I'm going to throw one out. Okay. One of the subjects you brought up was the idea of, um, of the poverty of stimulus. Yes. This may not be connected, but you had this example of a sentence. I put the raincoat in the, in the bathtub because it's still wet. Right, right. That's from John Hoagland, and it's probably my favorite sentence of English. I put the raincoat in the bathtub because it was still wet. You understand that sentence right away, effortlessly, but you don't realize that the it in it was ambiguous. 
So I put the raincoat in the bathtub because it was still wet. Well, the word it there could have referred to the bathtub being still wet or the raincoat being still wet. But we don't notice that at all, right? You don't notice that that's ambiguous between those two possibilities. Hoagland's point was is that you can never build a machine that knew that distinction. Why? Because, well, we make hundreds of non-notice distinctions like that every day. That is, we don't notice ambiguities in sentence because, well, it's obvious that you would never put the raincoat into a wet bathtub. But it's not obvious because of anything that you would already know about raincoats and bathtubs. Basically, you know it in virtue of being you, of being a human who was raised in our society as one of us. Basically, in order to know something like that, in order to effortlessly know that you would never put a raincoat into a wet bathtub, you have to know tons of stuff about living in the environment that we live in. Hoagland uses this as a way to explain why there could never be an intelligent machine, a machine that spoke natural language the way we do, because there's no database that you would put the fact about raincoats and bathtubs in. That wouldn't be part of your concept of raincoats or your concept of bathtubs, that when you get a sentence like this, it's the raincoat being wet, not the bathtub being wet. And again, this is an argument that the artificial intelligence is impossible in principle. And it points back to this claim that I made earlier that I don't think artificial intelligence is impossible in principle, but a machine that could tell whether it was the raincoat or the bathtub that was wet would do so in a way very, very different from the way you or I would. It would actually have to consider what that it meant in a way that you and I don't. An intelligent machine, if we could make one, would be very different from us. I have really enjoyed talking with you today, Tony. And maybe when I get done reading... Merleau-Ponty, I'll pick your brain some more. Yeah, this is fun. Thank you. And if you really want to talk to an expert in Merleau-Ponty, you should talk to Stefan. He wrote that chapter. Okay. He's the Merleau-Ponty guy? Uh, yeah. He's a genuine expert in phenomenology, whereas, you know, I'm a kind of interested amateur. He's the one who wrote the parts on Husserl and Heidegger and Kant. And I wrote all the history of psychology and all the cognitive science. If you were to kind of think about the book, all the stuff that's about what is classically considered phenomenology, Stefan wrote. And I wrote all the stuff that's really about science. And I also wrote the stuff on feminist phenomenology because I really like that. Well, I think you did a really good job of coming to writing in the, in the same voice, but not in a boring way. So, Oh, thank you. It was hard. Yeah, I'm sure it was. Books are a lot of work. That's why I haven't really written one. You should, because if you just like, think of the sum of what you've read. I've got plenty of material. I'm lacking in motivation. I mean, maybe it used to be, but definitely writing a book is not a way to make a lot of money nowadays. You do it because you have something you want people to hear. Yeah. And actually, in some ways, podcasting is the same way. Most of us aren't making much money doing podcasting, but it's rewarding because have the opportunity to share stuff. And if you think about this stuff that, you know, most of the people that listen to this podcast aren't going to read this book, but now they're going to know something about what phenomenology is. I hope I did justice to it. I want to thank Anthony Shamero for taking the time to talk with me and also to apologize for taking so long to get this episode out into the world. I actually recorded it a few days before my husband, Dennis, died unexpectedly on July 25, 2015. 
Before I try to review some of the key points, I want to mention that this book, Phenomenology and Introduction by Stefan Koifer and Anthony Chimero is a highly readable introduction to both phenomenology and to its relationship to the embodied cognition approach to understanding the mind. This book shows how phenomenology has impacted our understanding of things like perception and cognition. Even if you've read other books about phenomenology, this book offers an unique approach. First, it presents the key thinkers in historical context. Edmund Hersel is usually considered the founder of phenomenology, but Martin Heidegger is probably more well-known. However, I really appreciated the chapter about Maurice Merleau-Ponty because he was the one who actually engaged with the science of his day. Unfortunately, when Dennis died, I got sidetracked from reading his books, but I do hope to get back to that in the future. In a way, phenomenology is a break from the common Western approach of philosophy, which puts the emphasis on the ideal of rational thought somehow existing separate from the body and its environment. In contrast, phenomenology takes experience as primary and asks why we experience life the way we do. This brings us to the issue of embodiment because obviously our experience is directly tied to the bodies we inhabit. It also challenges the idea that thinking is something that just goes on inside of our heads. Heidegger's terminology can be quite off-putting, which is one reason why James Gibson's concept of affordances is so pivotal. This idea basically says that we see the world in terms of how we can interact with it. One thing that makes this idea so powerful is that it's easy to see how it can apply to other animals. For example, a bird might see a power line as a nice place to perch, while we see it as something that we should definitely avoid touching. It's also important to appreciate that phenomenology and psychology influenced one another, partly because phenomenology started at the same time that psychology was trying to emerge as a scientific discipline separate from philosophy. This is another reason why Merleau-Ponty is so important, because he was deeply engaged in both philosophy and psychology. In a way, I think we should consider Merleau-Ponty something of a role model for the importance of doing interdisciplinary work. Shimero describes Merleau-Ponty as careful thinking brought into contact with good science. A modern-day example is the philosopher Daniel Dennett, and as Shimero noted, engaging with science doesn't mean that there are no more philosophical questions. We talked briefly about how scientists and philosophers tend to see the world differently, but I agree with his comment that everybody's smarter than the other team gives them credit for. So the first half of the interview was pretty philosophical, but hopefully it set the stage for our discussion of what Shimero calls phenomenological cognitive science. The key difference between the phenomenological approach and standard cognitive science is that the standard approach works from the assumption that the brain's primary job is to build a model or representation of the world and then generate computations based on that model. In contrast, phenomenological cognitive science questions the idea of the centrality of mental representations or mental computation. 
Instead, it sees thinking as engaging with the world. Thinking is something we do as opposed to something that happens to us. Or to quote Shamero, thinking is something we do. It is not something that happens in our brains. The phenomenological approach is an embodied approach. I've discussed embodied cognition in many episodes of the Brain Science Podcast, so for the sake of time, I'm going to refer you to the show notes for a complete list of related episodes, including the guests that Shamero mentioned during our conversation. Another important point that he made was that no single theory is likely to explain everything. His position is that human beings do many things. Some do involve representations, but many don't. Also, the way we design our experiments influences our results. People can seem more like computers or more like oscillators, depending on the experiment. Does this matter? Shamero argues that the embodied approach can have important positive social consequences. For example, encouraging us to make our environments more human-friendly. We also talked briefly about dynamical modeling. I think there are two important things to remember here. One is that although a whole range of phenomena can be explained with the same mathematics, it doesn't imply modeling of the environment, representation, or computation. It's just an explanation of how things change together over time. That's what dynamical modeling is. Secondly, when scientists use complex math to represent something, such as what humans do when they play video games together, that doesn't mean that the humans are using the complicated mathematical model. The analogy he gave was that although we use uh, calculations to determine the trajectories of the planets, the planets don't calculate their trajectories. One of the key ideas of this book is that phenomenology is not just an interesting bit of history, but it continues to have increasing relevance, especially to those who are pursuing embodied cognition. Shamero talked specifically about the inactive approach, that's E-N-A-C-T-I-V-E, which we have explored in the past with Evan Thompson. He credits Thompson for the insight that if you start with the idea that you are a living body, a lot of philosophical questions kind of melt away. Finally, I always ask my guests for advice for students, but I asked Dr. Shamero a slightly different version of the question, which was how one might choose between a career in psychology, philosophy, or neuroscience. Naturally, we both agree that it is wise to be well-read in all three areas, but when it comes time to make a professional commitment, his advice was quite practical. Pick the one you love not the one that has the best job prospects. Hopefully today's discussion has left you wanting to learn more because next month's episode of Brain Science is an interview with Dr. Michael Anderson, author of After Phrenology, Neural Reuse and the Interactive Brain. Anderson has a long-standing interest both in embodied cognition and how the brain is organized. In After Phrenology, he brings these interests together within the context of brain evolution. This episode will especially appeal to those of you who prefer a more hard science approach to understanding what the brain does. 
In the meantime, don't forget to check out the show notes at either Books and Ideas or BrainSciencePodcast.com. There you will find a complete list of previous episodes about embodied cognition, as well as a free episode transcript. And I guess I should mention one other thing about the older episodes. Episode 94 of the Brain Science Podcast is free, but the other episodes were posted before 2013, which means that they are currently premium. To make it easier for you to get these episodes, I'm going to give out a coupon code for 50% on the premium subscription. The code is BSP-50. That's all caps, B as in boy, S as in Sam, P as in Paul, dash, five, zero. No spaces. Unfortunately, it's not yet possible to sign up for the premium subscription using PayPal. So if you need to use PayPal, please contact me rather than buying all the individual episodes and we can work something out. As I mentioned, the next episode of Brain Science will be released in late November. The next episode of Books and Ideas will be an interview with Matthew Cobb about his new book, Life's Greatest Secret, The Race to Crack the Genetic Code. Matthew was the first person I ever interviewed, so I'm really looking forward to talking with him again. That episode's probably going to come out in early December. The best way to make sure you never miss a new episode of either show is to sign up for one of my newsletters at brainsciencepodcast.com. Of course, I also want to encourage you to subscribe to both podcasts in your favorite podcasting app or to use the mobile apps. Don't forget that both Brain Science and Books and Ideas have free mobile apps that are available for iOS, Android, and Windows. I also want to remind you that I'm giving away a free one-year subscription to Brain Science Premium every month. To be eligible, all you have to do is put a review of either Books and Ideas or Brain Science into iTunes, Stitcher, or an app store, and then send a screenshot of your review to brainsciencepodcast at gmail.com. Finally, I want to thank everyone who sent me condolences about Dennis. Hearing from listeners from around the world has made me feel much less alone, and it has reminded me why I podcast. Sure, I love to share what I've learned, but it's really about connecting with you. So thank you for letting me know who you are and how my podcasts have made a difference in your life. Thanks again for listening. I look forward to talking with you again very soon. The Brain Science Podcast is copyright 2015, Virginia Campbell, MD. You can copy this podcast to share it with others, but for any other uses or derivatives, please contact me at brainsciencepodcast at gmail.com. The new theme music for the Brain Science Podcast is Mindfire by Tony Catraccia. You can find his work at syncopationnow.com.